Zivi Owens, and you're listening to the Webby-nominated podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Please also check out my other podcast, Kids Do Have Time to Read Books. I'm on Instagram at Zivi Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books and at Kids Do Have Time to Read. So please follow me. And if at any time you have suggestions, my email is zibby at zibbyowens.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks so much to my latest sponsor, the Mermaid Pillow Company, mermaidpillowco.com. They make these amazing pillows with sequins on the back and positive messages on the front. And they now even make custom pillows and blankets. It's an amazing company. And if you enter the code Zibby, Z-I-B-B-Y, you will get 10% off, which is super cool. So please check them out, mermaidpillowco.com. Hi, I'm so excited to be interviewing Lisa Tadeo. Lisa is the author of Three Women, a groundbreaking nonfiction book about three women's lives intersected by desire. Winner of two Pushcart Prizes for her short stories, including a riveting essay called 42 from the New England Review of Books, Lisa has contributed to Esquire, Elle, Glamour, and many other publications. Her nonfiction has been included in the Best American Political Writing and Best American Sports Writing anthologies. She currently lives in Connecticut with her husband and daughter. Thanks so much, Lisa, for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I mean, I, I've been following you on Instagram since, well, I've actually heard about you for a while, but I just, I wasn't on Instagram or like Twitter until very recently. So I'm kind of like, I'm like, oh, these are all people that I know. And I can, so it's been quite illuminating. Anyway, I absolutely love your Instagram. I love what you do. It's like, so it's just really cool, obviously, for a mom who doesn't have time to read. <laughs> so anyway, yeah, oh, thank, thank you. you. Like literally makes me feel so happy. Oh, that like made my whole day. Thank you. Because I'm having one of those days today <laughs> yeah. where like nothing is going right. So that actually just carried me a long way. So thanks. <laughs> oh, good. And isn't it funny when things aren't going right by like 10, 15 and it's like, oh my God, <laughs> there's like this whole other part of the day to live. Totally. Exactly. As if, as if I can't turn it around, right? It just started. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, so. your book, Three Women, I'm so excited to talk to you about it because this is like a holy shit book for me. Like I could <laughs> not get over this book. I was like enthralled from the very beginning and I have so many questions. So first of all, thank you for this thank book. You. I mean, oh my gosh, it's like a work of art. Thank you for calling it a holy shit book. That might be my favorite compliment ever. So thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So can you just tell listeners what Three Women is about and what inspired you to take on this, this really massive sort of nonfiction project that reads just like fiction? (laughs) Thank you. Okay. So Three Women is about three distinct and ordinary, and I say ordinary, meaning they're not celebrities or, you know, anyone that is sort of known in the world. So I wanted to, you know, take people who were, you know, just like everyone else and just kind of highlight that there's importance to every single life story since I feel like a lot of people don't, their life stories aren't told in a certain way. So the first woman, her name is Lena. She is a housewife in suburban Indiana. I'm not suburban, I'm sorry, somewhat rural Indiana. And her husband, when I met her, I started this discussion group in Indiana after moving there from New York City, because I felt that New York City was just not, it wasn't sort of conducive to getting into someone else's worldview and out of my own, which, you know, I had a life there. So anyway, sorry to be tangential, but I moved to Indiana, started a discussion group, 
with the help of a doctor who, um, you know, had a bunch of patients that were sort of talking to him about, you know, weight loss and he was giving them hormones. It was a very interesting group of women. And one of the women who came into the, into the discussion group, her name was Lena. On the day that I met her, she was sort of deciding to separate from her husband which is something that is, you know, not done in her family and her part of Indiana. She couldn't talk to anyone about it, but she was making this decision. And the reason she was deciding to was because her husband for over a decade had not kissed her on the mouth and said that the sensation offended him. And they went to a couple of therapists who basically said, that's okay. Lena, you know how you don't like the feeling of wet wool on your skin. That's the way that your husband feels about kissing you on the mouth. It offends him. So, you know, it was sort of this, like, I mean, it was horrifying to hear that, because, but you know, it, it was just horrifying. And she also was embarking upon an affair with her high school lover who she had been obsessed with her whole life. And she had just recently found him on Facebook. So both these things were happening and the immediacy of her story was just so, you know, heartbreaking and also really wonderful to sort of write about because it was happening in the moment. And she needed someone to talk to. And it was just a kind of a perfect storm. The second woman, wait, Maggie, can I, I found... Wait, wait. Can I read a quote that you wrote about Lena, which was so beautiful? Yeah. About her and her, sure. her sort of lack of affection with her husband, Ed. You wrote, she felt, life, yes. she felt life slipping. She felt that her body was being wasted, that her heart was resting like steak on a cutting board. I loved that line. Anyway, you can go on now. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. So I found the second woman, Maggie. I'd driven across the country by this point like four or five times. I would do it six times before finding all of the people. So in North Dakota, I was sort of researching this group of women that were immigrants working at a coffee shop during the day and being trucked into the local oil fields at night as prostitutes for the men. So, you know, I was, it was very interesting to me, but I was in this coffee shop and I was reading a local paper and I read about Maggie's trial, wherein this young woman who had had an alleged relationship with her high school teacher who went on to, you know, win the award of North Dakota's teacher of the year. uh, She had come forward with her story after several years and nobody was, you know, the trial went a certain way and nobody in her town believed her, including people very close to her. And the thing that struck me about the article was that there had been like hundreds of hours, I think, of phone calls after 11 and midnight between the teacher and Maggie. And, you know, those were like irrefutable because they didn't have the text messages anymore, but they had these phone calls and these notes in her Twilight book where he had written things like, you know, is this like us? I can't wait till you're 18. He was comparing himself to the vampire lover you know, in twilight. And it was just shocking to me that nobody believed her. So I drove to Fargo the next day and, you know, introduced myself. And that's kind of how Maggie began. And the third woman, Sloan, is a very beautiful entrepreneur whose husband likes to watch her have sex with men and other women, either in front of him or, you know, sort of somewhere else. And she videotapes it for him. 
so I had already moved into that town because I'd been talking to other people in the town as like, you know, possible subjects. But then when I heard about Sloan, I heard all these rumors, but the first rumor that I heard, which was shocking to me that it was a rumor, was not even about the sort of swinging, but rather about the fact that she and her husband had, that her husband wanted to have sex with her every day. Not only did she quote unquote allow it, but she also wanted to do it too. And what was shocking to me was the sort of like, the, can you believe it? Like how, and it was almost like, you know, because, and whatever, it's fine. You know, some people want to and some people don't, but it was the sort of, you know, mocking of her, which I found so just interesting and kind of horrifying also. So for me, these three women sort of came to define the way that, you know, our culture, our society, the way we, we know something is other than us, we, you know, revile it and, or it makes us, you know, it projects our own, we project our own fears onto others and then sort of, you know, freak out. So those are the three women. I, I feel like I'm talking so much. <laughs> Please stop me. Okay. So you found these three women, you tied together their stories, which were woven in and out beautifully. You started the book with a passage that you wrote in the first person, and then you ended with a passage in the first person. So structurally, I found that really interesting. And you open up by talking about your mother and how when she was you know, a young girl in Italy, this dirty old man would like masturbate behind her on the street and how she allowed that to happen. And that sort of like sets the stage for this sort of sexually tinted narrative, which comes after. So how did you decide to start off with your own story or her own story, really? Well, that came very late in the game. Most of the book, I'd say nearly all of the book had already been written and was already interwoven. What happened was that, you know, well, first of all, the publisher had said, you know, I think you need to at some point give a little bit of how you feel because I had left myself out purposefully. So I thought I considered that and I, you know, I still didn't want to like say how I felt because how I felt is not as important as the way that other people feel just hearing the stories, I think. But what I did decide was that these women, indeed, all of the people who I'd spoken to for the book, which were in the hundreds and like 20 to 30 sort of very in depth. So all of these people had given themselves to this book in a way through no gain of their own and, you know, kind of without ego, except for some of the men I spoke to, which was a lot of ego involved in them. But the women, for the most part, and a lot of the men had not, you know, were not getting anything out of it. They were talking, they were kind of, you know, if anything, they were getting out of it, you know, just sort of a release and talking about it. But because they had put themselves out there in such a way, I felt like, you know, I should do the same in a sense of like, you know, I didn't want it to be about me, but I wanted it to show what shapes us. And, you know, I think that a lot of people talk about daddy issues, which, you know, are, are a thing. But for me and a lot of the women in the book, and, you know, I think all of them had, you know, mommy issues in a way where, like, I think the, you know, the sort of weight of the mother really is greater than we know until later in life which is something I think about every day when I feel like I'm, you know, messing my child up for life with the wrong <laughs> words. <laughs> totally. <laughs> um, so can I ask you a little more about Maggie's section to start? Yeah. Okay, so Maggie's section, and this was the, basically the first one you opened the book with. You say, six years ago, you were smaller and he loved your little hands. Back then, his own hands fluttered inside you. A lot has changed. Your father is dead. In August, he slit his wrists in a nearby cemetery. 
That is a lot for the first page of the the book. (laughs) (laughs) So tell me about your writing style. So I was so gripped with Maggie, especially with Maggie and the way you describe the teacher, like the, the way you bring to life that sort of abuse question mark with the two of them and how you crafted it. So I was wondering, did you always write in this way? It's sort of like a super visual, like sometimes second person, like tell, tell me about the, your writing style and how it developed. And did you have to take a class for this? Is this just the way you write? <laughs> well, it's always kind of, you know, the principle I kind of lead with is that I never want to be boring. And specifically, you know, with nonfiction, I think boring is easy to slip into. To even for me, for every, for anyone, it's it's difficult because there are these facts, and you need to be honest about the facts. So, you know, it's more difficult to take the sort of poetic license that one can take with fiction or poetry, of course. So, I had it very much in mind. Specifically, I had it in mind with Maggie's story that I needed people to feel what she had felt from the inside out rather than the outside in. And in order to do that, I chose the second person to start it with because I wanted, you know, I wanted there to be a, you know, a sort of immediate immersion in her feelings and thoughts. And so that's kind of where I went to. But I also, you know, I write fiction. My novel's coming out next year. And then my collection of short stories to follow. So I definitely have, you know, a fiction background. And I got my MFA at BU. So, you know, while I was kind of finishing the end of the book, so I was reading so much fiction. I always, I almost exclusively read fiction. I read nonfiction essays. Like I love Mary Gates skills. Somebody with a little hammer is one of the most recent collections of nonfiction that I've read, which I think is absolutely amazing. But for the most part, I read fiction. So, you know, I think that that's kind of where a lot of it comes from in fiction. You can be free. And in nonfiction, I wanted to bring that same freedom to it while still obviously having everything be true. Wow. I'm going to read one more quote from Maggie's section about texting, which I think is like the most beautiful thing I've read about texting. You said, lines of, you. lines of communication pile up like Tetris blocks. For the most part, their entries leave a good-natured slot for the other person to reply, except that some of Maggie's don't, but there's enough in them for Nodal to find a filament, pick it up, and thread it forward into a new conversation. Like, you could have just said they texted back and forth, right? <laughs> it's like a literary event. I don't know. I thought that was really cool. Thank you. Well, you know, what's, just to give you a sort of background in that is that, you know, I would ask Maggie specifically, like, you know, what did you write? And then she would say, I wrote this because she remembered it. You know, I would say verbatim because that's what young women remember when you're, you know, in love with someone. And, you know, and so she would tell me that and I'd be like, well, Was it like, you know, did he sort of text back or, you know, and she was like, no. And then I didn't write, you know, I didn't do anything for like three hours. And so like we talked about the same, that same instance, because it was the first instance of like them connecting in that way and him sort of, you know, reaching out in a non-teacher manner. So, you know, I just really wanted to get down the way that it happened, because I think when you, you know, you when it's in the trial, it's like, and then there were these texts and it's like, but we don't, you know, like you need to know how the text worked and who was sort of pushing it in order to believe her, which, you know, I did implicitly and right away. Wow. 
So cool. In Sloane's section now, so sorry to jump around, but I like want to hear about all these girls. So Sloane, who's the one who was having sex with her husband every day, and that was shocking in (laughs) in the town. (laughs) So So, terrible. (laughs) So So a lot of sort of the press around your book and everything is about women's desire and how this is like a commentary on women in some way. So this quote is about women's perception of each other. When you wrote, Sloane, who was known for being thin and sexy, immediately there in the kitchen began to list the ways in which she was better than Karen and the ways in which Karen was better than her. Sloane was thinner, Karen was younger. Sloane owned the restaurant and Karen merely worked in it. And you go on and on describing how they like sized each other up right away. Do you think that women do this more than men and why and do you feel like it's like a detriment like is this part of the of women like making some sort of statement or I don't know just talk to me about that passage (laughs) yeah I mean I do I do think women do it more than men you know I just read that piece in New York magazine the other day I don't know if you guys saw it but about the incels who like get all this plastic surgery I didn't see that. Oh, it's really, it's just absolutely amazing. But anyway, you know, I was looking at that and I actually, you know, there was a part about, there's a passage that's awesome in that where it says the author writes, this one young man that she had been talking to was saying that he just, his ideal dream was to have, was to live in a plastic surgery office and have the doctor right there on hand. So anytime he looked in the mirror and found something that he didn't like, he could just go into the operating room and take care of it. And I, you know, my friend had like written to me about the story and I copied that passage and texted it back to her. And I said, fuck, am I an incel? Because I was like, I, I you know, I want that same thing too. And, <laughs> you know, I just think, and, you know, I, I, a lot of the women I talked to, like Lena, you know, Lena, who was, you know, constantly assessing her looks in the mirror and it, it affected the way she went about her day. Sloan has this part where she looks in a mirror and is seeing like age around her eyes and she, her eyes are like, she's like, I can't drink anymore at night because I wake up looking like this. And that didn't used to happen when I was 25 and even 35. So, you know, there was so much of that in almost every woman that I spoke to, whereas many of the men, obviously some of the men had something similar, but most of the men did not, they were more concerned with, you know, their position in the world and financials. And, you know, for them, it was kind of just like, you know, they weren't looking at their looks unless they were a particular kind of man. And for the most part with women, I, I mean, I do think there's a sizing up, especially when you're younger. And, you know, Sloan was younger when she did that. I remember I had one friend in college who would not go to a party unless she was assured that she would be the most attractive person in the room. You know, so I've seen so much. And I remember thinking, like, that's insane. But I also understood it. I was like, you know, I don't feel that way. But I have felt something like that way in my life. And, you know, I yeah, I think that we do do it in different circumstances. And almost everybody, because I spoke to a group of swingers in Cleveland, you know, because I was interested in the whole thing. And then when I spoke to them more, it was kind of not, you know, it wasn't that deep. And whereas Sloan was. But the swingers in Cleveland were very much like, you know, they needed the other woman or the other man or whomever. They needed to feel better looking than them because otherwise there's a sort of like, is this person, you know, is this person performing oral sex on this other person more because they're more attractive? I mean, I just think it's a biological feeling that has also been molded by society. So what 
is it about you that made you want to learn about all these stories, right? This is like unusual that you spent so many years digging into other people's lives, crafting them into this really awesome book. How did you get here? Like, how did you, I know you won a push card for your great essay 42 and another push card in 42, by the way, was amazing because I am 42. (laughs) But like, how did you grow up or what is it along your journey that made you attracted to this sort of a project? You know, I mean, I think that the two things that I'm the most interested in, the two things that I think drive most of our lives are sex and death. Not to be maudlin, but I mean, I had a lot of loss in my 20s. I lost my parents, my dog, my aunt, my uncle, just like almost my entire family was decimated. Again, not to be maudlin, but it was it was a lot of loss. So for me, you know, a lot of what I decided to do after, and this process, this project started very differently than how it ended. So it wasn't so much. But when I started finding people that I really thought were both narratively interesting and just, you know, relatable on a human level, I, you know, I just, because I had so much loss, I think that I was drawn to the aloneness that one can feel in desire. And, you know, I just didn't want people to feel alone. So a lot of the kind of conversations that I had with with people were me sort of listening and making sure that they knew that there was someone seeing them on the other side. Because for a lot of these women, for Lena specifically, for so many of the other people I spoke to, the lack of being seen was heartbreaking. And I remember, not remember, this happened recently, but the German editor of my book said to me that the thing that struck him the most was how the indifference of men or, you know, any person who is sort of the alpha in a relationship, how the indifference could be so wounding, you know, whereas a man or a person might just not text back because they're busy and they've compartmentalized the other human being as something that they see when they need to or want to see her or him, you know, that sort of not responding just because you don't really need to in that moment is, I think, you know, it's a really, it's a heartbreaking thing. And that was something that I was very in tune with and attuned to and that I wanted to understand more about. And I'm so sorry to hear about all of your loss. That's tragic and terrible. I'm really, really sorry. I I just realized I used the word decimated, which is pretty uh, aggressive, but... (laughs) Do not, please don't Um, apologize. Like, I want to hear. I mean, that's like, I wanted to get to know you. That's like what it's all about, right? (laughs) Finding out, no, seriously, finding out like what motivates people to write and, you know, if, if it was like, and also how people handle loss, right? So you took your own loss and made it into something like this, whereas other people handle it in very different ways. So I find that really fascinating and I love hearing about it. So please don't apologize for that. That was like my favorite, (laughs) not to say it's my favorite part of the interview, but (laughs) you would tell me more about your family's decimation. This is getting juicy. (laughs) Oh, I totally get it. And thank you for it. Well, sometimes people are like, they don't know how to they're like, and I'm like, look, I'm so I'm brought it up because I'm obviously, you know, fine with discussing it. And people are like, you know, death kind of makes people, death and desire make people nervous because they don't, you know, there's a lot going on there. And, you know, yeah. So I also had a lot of loss in my 20s. So uh, I, I feel sorry. like, no, no, it's fine. But death doesn't put, I mean, I'm very open. 
I don't get scared away. I'll just say that. Okay. Like I, I, I feel like once you've been through a lot of stuff, it's, it, you know, some people who haven't been through stuff are a little sort of trepidatious. Is that even the right word about like getting close to it? But um, I'm not one of those people. So don't worry. Okay. Um, when, when you went through all of that, did you use writing as like a way to, I mean, cope is such a like cliche word, but did you find yourself writing to help you through that period of time or did you sort of handle it in other ways? I did. I mean, it took a while to get back into it, but I did, you know, not to, again, not to be whatever, but I, after my father passed away, I was, I moved back home to live with my mom because she was kind of, you know, lost without him. And I wrote this novel about sort of a young woman taking care of her mother who was sick. And what was funny is my mother was not sick at the time, but I was kind of like likening what I was doing to dealing with somebody with a disease because that's how it felt because she was so depressed. And then she actually did get sick and then she passed away. So it was like, so I had this new novel that I almost felt had like, you know, foretold this thing. So that was like kind of devastating. And I thought it was cathartic, but then it just became horrifying. So then from there, you know, it took a little bit of time because I thought that, you know, I just wasn't, I was just scared. So then after that, I did, you know, I think that when I started writing short stories again, you know, in my like early, my late twenties and early thirties, that was kind of when I started to feel like a catharsis from getting back into it. Wow. I mean, what, what a journey. I mean, I feel like, I feel terrible that you felt like, not that you foretold it, but you know, that it's something that you've dreamed of had happened and ended up being such a terrible thing. Totally. <laughs> I bet like you yeah. must've been, I wouldn't be afraid. I would have been afraid to write anything, right? Yeah. Like I mean, what I if it happened? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, I, I definitely still am. That's definitely still good. Like there are things I won't sort of touch, which is why, you know, writing nonfiction is a lot, you know, more, it's a lot easier in a way because, you know, it's just, it's real and someone else's story. So it feels, it just feels cleaner in a sense and more straightforward. Interesting. So what is your new novel about? So it is about a woman's rage, I suppose is the best way to put it. It starts out with a man coming into a restaurant while a woman is having dinner with a married man who is not her husband. And this other man walks up to the table and pulls out a gun and shoots himself in front of her. So after that happens, she, and we don't really know why in the beginning, but she drives from New York to California to, it's sort of like the kickoff for her. It's like the last straw because of a, a several things that have happened in her past. And she drives to California to find another woman. And we don't know what the sort of relationship is, but then they meet and they sort of become friends. And then the following journey is sort of like figuring out why it was important for her to find this woman. And then there's a lot of sort of, you know, devastation that happens at the end where she sort of takes out her rage on several people. Wow. Oh my gosh. I can't wait for that one. What is that? What's that going to be called? (laughs) It's called Animal. Wow. I'm like envisioning the cover. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. I, I try to sometimes. and It's funny because with three women, I, I really love the cover. I also love all the other covers of the other countries that I've seen so far. But I was like, when I saw it, I was like, oh my God, I can't imagine it ever having been a different cover. And the designer whose name is Alison Forner is just like, I mean, her talent is just so 
amazing. A lot of the cover, like, there's a lot of people I, you know, and the sort of other people who are being published at the same time who are covered by her and that just all so unique. You would never know that it's all her in a way. Right. Anyway. So sorry to go on a sort of tangent, no, but I'm no. really happy with it. Don't be silly. It's a great cover. So do you find time to read? And I know you're a mom like me. My daughter was, you know, <laughs> made a little cameo before. When do you find time to read? If at all, with all the writing and the mom it's stuff and whatever. really hard. It's so hard. And, you know, as you know, it is like that was the one thing before I had a child that I did the most. And I would like, you know, often my favorite thing to do literally was to go out to dinner and sit at like the bar of like a restaurant and read a book with like a glass of wine. And I haven't done that. Or like my other favorite thing was on the, I just loved sitting at pools with a book. Like that was, I mean, I could not be happier than doing that literally. And that neither has happened. Like I know like, definitely she's four. So I would say five years because I was pregnant and not really, you know, out and about too much, but yeah. So it's been a long, so now um, I have, you know, I forget what the Japanese word is, but there's a Japanese word for when you just stack books up on your bedside table or like next to your workspace. And so I have that to a point that is like obscene. I have like seven stacks of books just on my desk. And so what I do is I, I don't have time to read full books. So I read like passages of books, you know, either books that I've already read or new books that I just kind of start the first page and then I'll like wait a day and, you know, get it when I, it's really basically in like these snippets of time. So, and then at night I'm like, I work till like 11 cause it's been crazy lately. So I'm too exhausted. Like, I, you know, I put my kids to bed at like seven 30 and then I work from like seven 30 to 10 or 11. And then, you know, by 11, I'm like, you know, just dead tired. So sounds, this all sounds um, familiar. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure. My latest thing is like reading in taxis because I'm in New York City, but I used oh, to I used to mostly do stuff great. on my phone in taxis. You know, like that was a good time to deal with Instagram or whatever. Right. Now I'm like, yeah. you know what? Totally. I'm going all the way to like the Javits Center. I'm having a good 30 minutes. I could do Instagram or I could get through like a whole section. But I like what you yeah. said. I like what you said too about you know, sometimes you can only read a few passages or you can only read a chapter, half a book or whatever, and it's still good. You know, like you still get a sense and you're yeah. still in someone else's world. And I feel like the pressure to read books start to finish can be overwhelming. So anyway, I actually just decided yeah. maybe you should do this. I just decided I had like such a towering stack on my desk and I just did interview Gretchen Rubin, who is all about like outer order intercom and like getting your desktop clean. And I'm looking at my desk with this huge stack of books. I was like, oh my gosh. So I just did like a big giveaway on Instagram of like all the books that like I'm actually not going to get around to oh, reading wow. and you should do that. <laughs> you know, I, I don't know. I want to, but I don't know that I like can, you know? So, I mean, yeah, whenever I, you know, I sort of read about, you know, the art of tidying or whatever, I'm just like, okay, but not for books. Right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So it's a good idea, but I don't know. I, I'm like way too, I'm also like kind of a sentimentalist. So like, I just keep everything well, these are, so, yeah, I, I mean, my caveat is that these are books that I had like a galley copy of as well, or a second copy, or I knew, oh, I, right. or that someone right. had sent me that I wasn't going to get to or whatever. Okay. Well, ignore my right, idea. Right. But anyway. <laughs> no, 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 no. I, I want to, I want to do that. I know we're almost out of time and I have like a zillion other questions. So we're going to have to like meet in person or something, but do you, <laughs> do you have any advice to aspiring authors? You know, the main thing I find it with a lot of younger people is that 
there's a lot of like, you know, waiting for, I mean, waiting for some sort of, you know, thing to go off and you can't wait. You just have to write because otherwise nothing's going to happen if you don't just, you know, finish something. The other thing that I've told a lot of, you know, younger people that I've sort of taught and stuff like that is, you know, perfectionism has no place, I think, in almost anything. I always just get, I've always my whole life just gotten stuff out the door and then waited for feedback. I think there's a real fear with writing of being seen and being thought to be not as intelligent or not as creative. And, you know, the truth is that stuff, you know, it's all normal fears, but it's not something that's going to get you to the next place where you want to be. So that's like my main thing is don't kind of like overwork a draft of anything. I have a friend who is an amazing writer and she is just, it's, she's a beautiful writer and she just works on things for years, like short stories. And I'm like, look, this is good enough to get in almost anywhere. So, you know, just send it. And so finally I like, took, I'm like, I'm sending this to someone, to an editor I know today. So you can try to stop me, but like, I just couldn't take it. It was just insane. So yeah, just, just do it. Just finish it and don't worry too much about it. And yeah, that's my main, main advice. Because I think that's the biggest hurdle that most people face. And the other thing is, and one more thing is that, you know, I feel like, you know, the old adage, write what you know, is obviously so time old. You know, you know, it's just age, I'm sorry, time, whatever the word is. Age old, <laughs> so, age old, yeah, yeah. Age old, age old. Thank you, time old. Where did I... I'm like, clearly should not be giving writing advice, but <laughs> the age old adage, write what you know, it is, it's like, you know, it really is so true because when people write what they're going through in the moment and not necessarily the exact thing, especially when it's like fiction, I always say, you know, take the truth of what you're feeling and, you know, attach it to a different character in a different world or, or place so that you can feel more free to you know, invent, but also, you know, stay true to this thing you understand very deeply. So that's my other. Excellent. That is excellent advice. (laughs) Well, thanks, Lisa, for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. And thanks for this book coming out July 9th. Is that right? July 9th? Yes. July 9th. Okay. Well, thank you for everything. (laughs) I appreciate all your time. Thank you for everything. And again, I think the thing that made me the most excited was seeing your daughter come into the room. So beyond everything else that you're doing, thank you for that. (laughs) Oh, well, I can arrange that anytime. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe they can Skype together while, you know, we do like our work elsewhere. Totally. Um, That would be great. Thank you so much. And so lovely to meet you too, Nora. Um, And I will read your book in in sections. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Have a good day. All right. Cool. You too. Bye. Bye. So I just had to comment on my interview with Lisa Tadeo. I feel like her book was so dark and disturbing in parts, but so riveting. And I felt like I really got to the heart of the matter when I found out about all of the loss she's had in her life. I feel like I've been interviewing a lot of authors lately whose brilliance is inspired by periods of intense grief or something sort of tragic and terrible. And once I find out where that has happened in their lives, I feel like it informs the book for me a little bit more. Um, So anyway, I just wanted to say... um, that I didn't know about that ahead of time, but um, it all kind of makes sense a little more for me now. So maybe when you're reading the book, um, you keep that in mind and it might just make the whole experience a little richer for you. 
Thanks again to my sponsor, Mermaid Pillow Co. Mermaidpillowco.com slash Zibby and our code Zibby for 10% off. Thanks so much. Check out those really awesome giftable pillows and blankets. Thanks for listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. You can follow me on Instagram at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books and at Zibby Owens and my new podcast at Kids Do Have Time to Read. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Thanks for listening. You could always email me at zibby at zibbyowens.com. 